Masechet Yevamot, Daf Kaf Dalid. We have two Mishnayot today on extremely important topics regarding which brother has the primary obligation to perform Yibum and who inherits. And the next Mishnah about converting for ulterior motives, uh, which is very important and relevant. Uh, but we begin with, uh, with the last line of the previous Mishnah, Kadmu Kansu En Motzi'in Tane Shela. Uh, we were talking about this case here, where there are two people married to two sisters, but they're not sure which one uh, did Kiddushin, but aren't sure who did, who did Kiddushin with whom, and they die without children. And in this case, the optimal solution is for one of the brothers, like Shimon, to perform Chalitza and Haron to perform Chalitza here. And after they do that, then the other brother can actually marry uh, this one, marry the one that the other one, whoever Shimon did Chalisa with Shimon Levi would marry the other, whoever Aaron did Chalisa with Laza would marry the other. And uh, this solves all problems. However, the very last clause says, let's say Levi and Shimon both perform Chalitza, one to Rachel and one to Leah. All right, so now whichever one was married, uh, which was engaged to the Uven, she, has, uh, she is a now a halusa. If these two then go ahead and uh, perform yibum, uh, both Aaron uh, Terachel and Elazar Tere'ah, then that uh, we do not remove them from that marriage, even though they should also do Chalitza first. Uh, but if they go to get married first, it's okay, because one of them is an actual Yevama of Moshe, and the other one is not related uh, to, to him, so it's perfectly fine. Okay, uh, uh, Shela adds that even if these two are Kohanim, we still do not uh, allow them, we still do not uh, undo the marriages. And this is a challenge because one of these is uh, for sure a halusa uh, from, because Levi and Shimon did halisa to both of them, and one is a halusa. Uh, so therefore, one is a halusa, the one who was with Reuven. Uh, so therefore, a kohen cannot be with a halusa. So how can you say that we allow both of them to remain married? That's the question. And the reason is because the prohibition of Chalusa is only mid Rabbanan. Because uh, a Kohen cannot marry a divorcee, that's in the Torah. But Chalusa doesn't say so explicitly. And since it's only the Rabbanan, Sefek, the Rabbanan, Lekula. Because we don't know which sister is, in fact, the Chalusa, the one that was originally uh, had had Kiddushin with Reuven. So each brother can say, no, it's not me. The other one can say, it's not me. And so, and we allow them to remain married. And then we ask, is that true? Is that true? We have a midrash halacha that uh, on the pasuk isha zon machal lo yikachu isha ve isha girusha meisha lo yikachu. This is the biblical prohibition of a kohen to be with a girusha, and the midrash learns from the word ve isha girusha meisha that there is yet another woman besides a girusha, a ve isha, and that comes to include a halusa. And uh, generally, if you have a midrash halacha that learns something from a pasuk, then that is called a deoraita. And we answer, no, uh, must be that, in fact, this law is only midrabanan uh, because the chalusa looks like, it seems like, uh, similar to uh, uh, gerusha. Uh, and even though it's true, it brings a word in the pasuk, that's just a support to give the drabanan law an extra air of authority because we connect it to a pasuk and uh, uh, we can remember it better as well. Okay, this is an important methodology here because probably if you just look at the Tanaitic source by itself, it was considered the Oraita, uh, but uh, it's, uh, the Bavli uh, now uh, says, no, no, not true. It is a um, Drabanan. All right, and now we get to the next Mishnah. The primary mitzvah is for to, to perform yibum is with the oldest of the brothers. Uh, however, if one of the younger brothers uh, uh, jumps up, jumps in, and performs yibum first, then zacha, it's the, the, the yibum does take effect. 
it is valid. All right, that's it. That's the short, short Mishnah. But it packs in a lot of information here that we have to analyze. Tenor banan. So we cite a baraita midrash halacha. Vehaya habbechor mikan shemisva bagadol leyavim. And the pasuk says the eldest. So we learn from the words vehaya bechor that in fact is the oldest that has the primary obligation. Asher teled perat la'elonit she'en yoledet who will give birth. Uh, so that we learn from there that only a woman who is fertile can uh, can one can do yibum with. Uh, but if she's ailonit, if she's not fertile, not fully, never never uh, developed um, biologically, then uh, we then you do not perform yibum uh, with her. Yakum al shem achiv lenachala, and uh, the will uh, will see who. Uh, uh, will be uh, established in the name of the brother, and this means inheritance. Okay, inheritance. Wait, so uh, someone will get the inheritance, but literally it just says, Yakum al Shem will be called the name of. Uh, so who is this even going on? Uh, so is this, and is it talking about inheritance or maybe it's talking about a name? And so if it's talking about a name, then that's surely talking about the child that will be born from the union of the Yibum. And in that case, so this is what we're thinking, if it's just talking about name, Yosef, Korinoto Yosef, the deceased brother's name was Yosef, then we'll call the child also Yosef to uphold his name. Yochanan Korinoto Yochanan. Neemar Khan, Yakum al Shem Achiv, Neemar Lalan al Shem Achehem, Yikade u benahalatam. Ma shem ha amor lehalan nahala, af shem ha amor kan le nahala. So I might, I might have thought I was talking about this, the child, and I call him Yochanan, uh, just like the father. No, but we actually going to make a Gezera Shava here, and very important Gezera Shava, because it says it will uphold the name of the dead. And in at the end of Bereshit, it says, al shem achehem, uh, when Yaakov is blessing the two sons of Yosef. Um, he says they will be called the name of their brothers. Now they have names already. They're not, you're not calling them Reuven and Shimon, uh, but rather it's clear from that, from there, that it's talking about inheritance. This is the way that uh, Yaakov is giving Yosef a double portion by taking his two grandchildren and giving them the same status as his own children and thereby uh, counting Yosef as two for inheritance. So Shem here means inheritance. It's the legacy of a person that lives on through his land and possessions that go on to the next generation. And then maybe people will call it, oh, there, that's the field of uh, so-and-so, right? But it is primarily inheritance, not the name of the individual. And so just like the word Shem over there means inheritance, so too Shem over here means inheritance. And this is a really solid and very important Gezer shava because that is the Peshat of what it means in Bereshit, and may very well be the Peshat of what it means here as well. Um, okay, good. So to understand this Midrash, we have to go back to the Pasuk for a minute and uh, see what the uh, Peshat is, and then appreciate well, how the Midrash got to, got to this. Because this is a case, as we're going to, Gemara itself is going to say, where the Midrash is not only added to the Peshat, but actually uproots and goes against the simple reading. Uh, so the simple reading is that when one performs Yibum, this Bechor in the Peshat is referring to the child that will be born, the oldest, the first child that will be born to the Yavam and Yavama, uh, the, the first child that she will uh, give birth to. Uh, Yakum will uh, be established upon the name of now here is a difficulty because you would expect it to say Al Shem Aviv Hamet uh, will will establish his that the child will establish his father's name. Uh, so I have to say Achiv is not the the pronoun of Achiv is not going on the previous uh, immediately previous person, but rather uh, on the Yavam beforehand that it will be established the name of the deceased brother. So the child will be established meaning inherit the name of the deceased brother so that it will not be gone from Israel. And in fact, if you look at Rashbam, he says, haben, He agrees that the Peshat is in fact that Haya Bechor is talking about the child. Uh, 
However, the, the Gemara just quoted uh, Midrash that we also found in the Sifre that says, HaBechor is talking about the oldest brother. And that's really hard to read in. And so then, because he says, HaBechor, Asher Teled, the Bechor that will be born. What do you mean? But this brother is already alive, right? They had, the, only, Yibum only works if the brothers are alive at the same time. And that's why the Midrash has to reread Asher Teled, to, uh, to be a description of the Yevama that you only do it if she is, uh, uh, if she can give birth, if she is uh, not infertile. Um, and uh, then Yakum Hashem Achiv Hamet, so then it's that Bechor who, uh, in the, now in the, in the Midrashic reading, is the oldest brother that upholds the name of the dead, meaning the oldest brother is the one that inherits not the child. So this is a radical transformation of a reading of a pasuk. And in order to understand it, we can try to reconstruct uh, what happened historically. Uh, historically, we see examples in Tanakh of people that don't want to perform Yibum, uh, like, uh, like Aed and like Peloni Almoni. And so if we ask, well, how come they were, uh, how come they didn't want to perform Yibum? The answer is because uh, one, of, one possibility is because um, normally when a person has, uh, has, uh, takes a wife and child, he has to provide for his wife and provide for the child, pay food, clothing, shelter, tuition. Um, but it's worth it financially because that child is also a person's retirement plan. When a person gets old, the child will go and work the field and provide for the father and be the future legacy who will live on and uphold the name through the through the through the, the field and possessions. So it makes financial sense, uh, besides romantic sense, to have a wife and children. However, in the case of Yibum, uh, it's, it's, you, one only has the obligations and none of the benefits because now this brother has to take on his deceased brother's wife, take care of her, provide her food, shelter, and clothing, and then have a child, pay the child's tuition, and then that child grows up. And uh, that child will then inherit the land, land that if there was no child would have been split with, would have gone to the father or split up with the brothers. So now not only does the surviving brother not get the land from his deceased brother, that land goes to this child. And this child, even though it's biologically his, uh, uh, legally is not his. And that child will not be a retirement plan and will not uphold his name, but rather deceased name. So that's why Yibum is such an amazing chesed. So we can appreciate uh, Boaz all the more that he, uh, that he did this. And anyone who performs Yibum, what a great kindness they are doing self-sacrifice for their brother. However, because it was so difficult to do and so much, so much of an obligation, uh, with no with with no uh, benefit back, uh, so many people were not performing yibum, and if they weren't performing yibum, that means the widow had no one to take care of her, and the deceased brother had no future. So, in order to rectify the problem, this midrash does exactly that. And this midrash says that you know what, uh, you know who inherits not the child that will be born, but rather the brother who does yibum, and that way now he has incentive. Uh, and so with this, the proceeds of this field, he can take care of the wife, he can take care of the child. And uh, this way, at least the wife will have someone to take care of. She won't be uh, uh, left out on the street as a widow. And there will be a child to uphold the name, uh, even though we'll not get the inheritance, uh, but rather the brother will get the inheritance. So that seems to be the uh, historical background behind this very radical rereading of the Peshat of the Pesukim. Okay, and so now we understand uh, what the Bechot is, and this is the reason for the Mishnah, that the mitzvah is that the oldest brother should perform Yibum, and comes from here, HaBechot, and the inheritance, the word Shem is not the actual name, but rather the inheritance that goes to the brother. We continue reading and says, And so that his name will not be blotted out, and we say this comes to exclude someone who's a eunuch. If the deceased brother uh, cannot have children, then it means his future, his name is already blotted out even while he was alive, and so Yibum does not apply in that case. Okay, that is the end of the Midrash Halacha, and now Amarava. 
אף אגב דבכל התורה כולה אין מקרא יוסה מדי פשוטו, אחא עתי גזרה שווה אפיקתה מפשעתה לגמרי. So fantastic statement by Rava, even though in the rest of the Torah, uh, when we make a midrash, the midrash is an added layer, uh, but the peshat still remains, right? And so there's, a, there's two layers that we can read it, but here, no. The, it's the opposite. The Gezera Shavak can actually uproot this. In this case, it uproots the Peshat completely. Um, because if the Peshat would be Shem means a name, and I would call the child the name. Uh, but in this case, no, it, the, it only means inheritance, and the inheritance uh, only goes to the brother, and there's nothing to do with the name, and therefore there is no obligation at all to call the child that will be born uh, any name uh, uh, or the name of the deceased. You can call him any name that you want, and there is, this halacha does not, the, the Peshat does not apply at all. Okay. Now, hold on, we say, oh, is this really, is there really a level of Peshat here even? And if not for the Gezerah Shava, then I would have said name means an actual name. It's hard to read the Pasuk if it's actually talking about what you're going to call the child because of the pronoun that I mentioned before, right? Who is the Torah talking to? If the command is to the Yavam and says the child that will be born, uh, should uh, should uh, uh, um, should be established upon the name of should be your brother if it's if it's talking to the brother uh, if it's talking uh, to the betin uh, then it should then you would have expected then it should have said the child that will be born will be established upon the name of the child's father's uh, brother. Um, the, the the deceased because then the um, the immediately preceding the, the pronoun should go on the immediately preceding verb noun which was the child so it doesn't work there either it just says achicha and so we answer no really at the Torah is 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 uh, directed. The Torah law is directed to the Betin, and they're telling the Betin, hey Betin, go tell the Yavam that he should establish the name based on his brother. And so that the pronoun, therefore, does make sense and can make sense, even if it's talking about an actual name. And so, yes, uh, and so we uphold Rava's statement that in this case, the Gezerah Shava completely uproots the Peshat. We could have read the Peshat that's talking about the child and the child's name that you call him Yosef. Um, it, it, you could read it that way and parse the syntax just fine. And so this Gezerah Shava, Shava uproots it altogether. Okay, Hashtad Amar Tekera Bagadol Ketiv Emma Bechor Leavim Pashut Loliavim. Okay, so now that we understand that Hayab Bechor is talking about the Gadol, and the oldest brother is the one that does Yibum. So, what about the status of the younger brothers? We're going to go through a few different uh, iterations, a few different possibilities. Um, so the first one is that the Bechor does Yibum and the, the rest of them, right, this regular brothers, any, any brother who is not the Bechor, cannot do Yibum, right? And this, so the obligation is only, not only, not, not primarily, but only on the Bechor. No one else can do Yibum. But that can't be because we already had a derasha that says, Ki yeshivu achim yachtav, uh, that Yibum only applies when the brothers are alive at the same time, and if they're non-contemporaneous brothers, then we don't do Yibum. Well, if the mitzvah is only on the firstborn, then obviously the firstborn is alive at the time that the younger brother uh, is deceased. And so there could never be a possibility of a case of non-contemporaneous brothers. And so you wouldn't need a pasuk to exclude it. So that can't, that's impossible to say that the younger brothers cannot do it at all. But we ask about that. No, maybe we still need this pasuk of Yachdav to exclude a firstborn from a mother. If a man has two wives and this one wife has a firstborn and he has another 
well, it's not his, it's not the father's firstborn, but it's firstborn of that mother. And so maybe I would think that's why if they're not contemporaneous, then they cannot do it. Um, but otherwise, uh, if they are contemporaneous, then either the bechod of the mother or the bechod of that mother can perform yibum. Um, but no, we reject that. No, because the whole point of yibum is regarding inheritance. Inheritance all comes from the father. And therefore, the only relevant bechor is the father's firstborn. And it makes no difference if it, if it is or not the mother's firstborn. Okay, so we resolve that one. But now another challenge. Maybe when the Benaita says, is referring to the firstborn, uh, maybe that means that when there is a bechor, uh, when there is a firstborn, then anyone can do a yibum. But if there is no firstborn, then no one can perform yibum. But it doesn't mean that the, only the firstborn can do it. Um, uh, but if there's no firstborn, if he's not alive, then no one can do it, right? So that's a possible, uh, it's a possible reading. And so we say, no, Amar Kira Umet Ehad Mehem, Mi Laskinan Demit Bechor, Bachamana, Leabem Katan. And so, no, it says, the uh, Pasuk says, one of the brothers dies. It doesn't specify which brother is the deceased. And so it could very well be that it's meaning that the oldest, the Bechor, dies. And yet, it says, someone, a child, someone else is going to do Yibum. So there would be a case where the Bechor dies, there is no Bechor, and yet uh, a younger one can do Yibum. And so this shows that even a younger brother can do Yibum. Uh, but then we, we refute that. It says, well, not necessarily that the Pasuk is talking about. Maybe it says, one of the brothers dies. Maybe it's only true if a younger brother dies. And then the Bechor, the oldest, is the one that does the Yibum, and so, right, this, uh, this reading is possible. Uh, but no, we answer, No, because back to the problem we had before, that the, uh, we have that teaches us that um, they, there is a, 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 that we exclude any case where the brothers are not coexistent. So there has to be a possibility for the brothers to be um, co to be not to be non-coexistent, and a case of non-coexistent brothers would can only be possible if a younger brother could, uh, in uh, if they are contemporary, contemporaneous, perform yibum, and so we reject that explanation of the baraita. And so now we uh, challenge with a third explanation uh, of the Braita. This whole time, what we're trying to figure out is Pasuk says, which sounds like there's something special about the Bechor, the firstborn, uh, even though the Braita itself that explains it says, Hagadol, which just means the oldest, um, uh, was not necessarily the Bechor. So we're trying again and again to say, how could it be possible? Maybe it's possible that is in fact the Bechor and not just the oldest. And so what a different permutations that there'll be something special about the Bechor, like why does the Pasuk say Bechor and not just oldest? So we, the third uh, uh, possibility is Ve'ema, ki leka Bechor kadam katan zacha, ve'ika Bechor kadam katan lo zacha. Maybe when there is a Bechor, then the Bechor has exclusive right to do Yibum, and if the younger brother uh, performs Yibum, it does not work, but if the Bechor is not around, if the Bechor already died, cannot do it for whatever reason, then the uh, younger can do it. So something special about the Bechor that's not true of any of the younger brothers. But we reject this also because the Pasuk says when the brothers are alive together, <coughs> which means that they are all together they are all the same. The word Yachdav says that they, the law is uh, compared one to another, and therefore all of the brothers have um, are equally obligated in the misvah of Yibum. <clears throat> Once we have this Tadasha, this by itself rejects all the previous uh, possibilities that uh, only the Bechor could do it, uh, or... or um, uh, that only if the Bechor is alive, then the others can do it, but if it's not alive, only Bechor could do it when he is, uh, all, all, if there is a Bechor, 
only he could do it. But if not, then the younger one, then the other one, the younger ones can do it. All these three possibilities are impossible because we've now established that uh, there's an equal obligation on all the mitz, all of the brothers. Okay, so now what's special about the Bechor? Okay, maybe it's as follows that uh, when there is a Bechor, then we go to uh, the oldest brother, who is the who is the Bechor. If there's no Bechor, then it doesn't matter the order uh, that they're in. Um, uh, and and uh, we don't uh, look for the oldest. Uh, but that can't be either. Abaye Kashisha taught that the Misfa is for the oldest. And if he doesn't want to, then we go We go to the younger. And then if he does, still doesn't want to, then we go back to the older. And that implies that the eldest, even if he's not firstborn, has a greater mitzvah than the younger ones. So we try to explain that the pasuk says the word bechor because it's the bechor that has not only first dibs, but also if no everyone else refuses, then we force the bechor, and that would not apply to any other brothers, only to bechor. But we reject that because Abba Kashisha says misvah bagadol, and that sounds like even if it's not the bechor, the oldest who is available, who is around, uh, he has uh, first dibs, and he has has the obligation to perform yibum, even if no one, else, when, if no one, nobody else wants to. And so, there's nothing special again about bechor. So, back to our question: Why does the pasuk say bechor specifically instead of just oldest? And we answer: Kib bechor, ma bechor bechor malo, af gedul malo. So, rather, we say the pasuk says bechor, and anyone like a bechor. What's special about bechor? The fact that he's firstborn that caused him uh, to be the one that has the primary obligation because he's the oldest. And so anyone who's the oldest, even if he's not the Bechor, uh, it's being the oldest that will cause that person to have that brother to have the primary obligation. And so we understand why there is, uh, why we say the word Bechor. Okay, a tangent. Uh, let's say that the Bechor or the oldest refuses. Um, and then there's three other brothers. Does it go in age order that the second oldest and then third oldest? Or once the oldest is, is uh, refuses, then the order doesn't matter. Uh, so from the the wording here, it says "Loda salchim eselachiv hakatan." You go by the younger. Uh, it doesn't. Uh, uh, maybe it's referring to well, if there's only one younger child, but it doesn't say after. The, it doesn't say to the next oldest. Rashi says "achiv hakatan" means the next oldest. And yes, you'd have to go in age order. If we look at Rambam, however, here Rambam says shavin. So once the oldest refuses, I mean, he has the mitzvah, then the rest are all equal, right? The rest of the brothers have, have, have no precedence one over the other. Uh, so Rambam um, uh, may very well have our same girsa that says katan, and uh, he interprets that to mean any all, all ketanim, anyone who's younger than the oldest has equal uh, possibility. And that, in fact, is the girsa in all printed editions, and uh, some other manuscripts as well. Uh, Ra'avad, however, has, uh, takes, uh, 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 takes up um, an op opposite point of view, and he says, Echyomar, how could Rambam say that they're all the same? Here I have in my Gemara, and it says, he quotes his version of the Gemara, that says, Misva Bagadoliavim. If the oldest doesn't want it, then we do it, then we follow the Gadol, meaning the next oldest. Uh, and so we do go in uh, age order. And the Ra'avad's uh, Girsa does appear in, um, in one um, manuscript that's found in St. Petersburg. Uh, so they have If the Gadol doesn't want it, then you go to the next Gadol, and otherwise you go to the Katan. So that sounds like it's talking about age order, uh, or even this Geniza fragment in Pennsylvania uh, says, Gadol. And does say Gadol doesn't have anything, it doesn't say anything about Katan in this case, but this might just be missing words. Uh, but all the other ones do say Katan. Uh, this one, Oxford says, Lo ratzu holchin etzel achiv. 
Lord Asol Chinasel Gadol, and so still has Gadol. Okay, and so uh, Rambam um, may have the word Katan, and that's what accounts for his Girsa, whereas Ravad has uh, the word, doesn't have Katan, uh, has, as you go to the next Gadol, and that would account for his Halacha. And so this is an interesting case where a manuscript difference can, uh, can affect the halachic outcome, as uh, the commentaries on Rambam already uh, point out here. All right, so good. So this would be one reason uh, why it says Bechor, but we challenged it also. Perhaps the Pasuk is going out of its way to say Bechor, that the Bechor takes the inheritance, when he does Yibum, but if any of the other brothers does Yibum, they can do Yibum, but they won't get inheritance. And that can't be because No, the Pasuk says anyone who upholds the name, if he upheld, if he, if he did it, he upheld, he upheld the name, that means he did Yibum, then he gets inheritance. So it comes automatically with the territory, literally. And so we finally ask, the, the fact that the Torah says Bechor, what is it coming to teach us to say Bechor and not Gadol? Because you would have had equal information if you just said the oldest and not, ne not necessarily the firstborn. And the final answer is Ligri Ota. It's actually coming to limit the inheritance. Ma Bechor enon hotel beraui kib muhzak. That the way that inherit, they inherit are the same. When a Bechod inherits uh, a father, uh, the Bechod the gets double only from what the father actually has in his possession. Uh, but if, it, if something that's owed to the father and is only paid after the father dies, that the Bechor does not get double of that. So if uh, it's two brothers and the father dies uh, having $3,000, so the older will get $2,000 and the younger will get $1,000. And if the father also happens to be owed $10,000 and is paid afterwards, uh, then the brothers split that equally. So too, the, uh, the, the Yavam, who is, is uh, getting his own share, uh, let's say, uh, you know, the, let's say the father was still alive. And so when the father dies, the Yavam would get his own share and get the deceased brother's share for whom he did Yibum. And when he gets that share, he only gets the share of the deceased brother that was in possession uh, and not uh, what was owed to, uh, to him or his estate and that was only paid afterwards. And that's why it says Bechod to tell us that the law of inheritance here is similar to the law of inheritance regarding a Bechod. The next Mishnah has nothing to do with Yibum, uh, but rather uh, suspected problems in a marriage. Uh, but it's included here because previously we were talking about distinguishing between cases where uh, someone may not marry versus when if they do marry, we uh, force them to separate or once they marry, we allow them to remain which was the uh, previous Mishnah uh, before the one about Bechor. So we bring this case also where there is a similar distinction. Okay, the case is Hanit'an al hashivcha v'nishtachrera o al hagoya v'nitkayera. Hareze lo yichnos. Someone is suspected. There is a, a rumor. It's not a it's not proven, it's not a substantiated rumor, but it's a reliable enough rumor that a person uh, was, uh, uh, was intimate with uh, a maidservant, meaning Ebed Shivcha Kena'anit, who's not Jewish. And then that, per, that uh, woman is freed. And by being coming freed, she becomes a convert. She becomes a full Jew. Or if he was suspected, it was a rumor that he was together with a non-Jew. And then that non-Jew converted. Uh, that man may not marry either the shivcha or the woman who converted, even though at this point, this person, they are fully Jewish and they could marry anybody else. But because there was a rumor about this person, while they were not Jewish, so we don't, the person, this person should not benefit from having sinned, and if he goes ahead and marries this person, it will only confirm the rumor that was around before, and everybody say, oh, see, it's true, that's, she only converted to be with him, and it's true that he was together with her in sin. Uh, we also mentioned this uh, prohibition er, er, earlier in the Mishnah regarding a Shifcha or a Goya. 
That's okay. That's case one. Im kanas and mosin beyado, mosin beyado. Nevertheless, since it's only this is only a problem about uh, confirming a rumor, but the the marriage, if he does marry her, is valid because she is Jewish. So therefore, bidi avad. If he goes ahead and does kiddushin, he gets two witnesses and uh, finds someone who's able, willing to be a witness and do it. Uh, then we do not force him to uh, divorce her. Next case. This case is more stringent. Someone who, for, about whom there is a rumor that he committed adultery. Um, in that case, uh, she, committed, she committed adultery. Um, and then uh, we force that couple to uh, divorce as uh, she's removed from her husband. And uh, so then the adulterer and this woman may not get married, right? So again, uh, someone, someone should not uh, benefit from uh, after ha having sinned. This would be a deterrent for having adultery uh, in that, uh, you know, if, the, if they do, if the adulterer and this married woman are together, then uh, while they're married, then they will never be able to uh, be married legally. So, you know, they should go through a proper divorce first uh, before they are together. And in this case, because it is more stringent, a violation of adultery, uh, even if they go ahead and do get married, and the marriage, while the marriage does take effect, the court will force them to divorce um, because of this, uh, because of that sin. All right, that is the Mishnah's two cases. Now, now we ask a question on the first case. Uh, this woman who uh, was a not Jewish and she was with a Jewish man or suspected of being with a Jewish man and then converts and uh, we do not allow them to marry. Okay, we don't allow them to marry, but the implication is that the conversion is a valid conversion. And she could go ahead and marry someone else and you know, be, be at, uh, would uh, continue her life as a Jew. Uh, and now we have a baraita, a very important baraita that contradicts this. We have a baraita that says a man or a woman who converted for marriage, right? A man converted to be to marry a woman, or a woman converted to be with a Jewish man. Or someone converted because they want to be at the king's table. Not literally, it means that they there's prestige when the Jewish people are doing well and their economy is doing well. Um, you can say like today when uh, we're immigrants from Philippines and lots of different countries uh, would love to uh, convert to Judaism so, Judaism so that they, they could make aliyah under the law of return because the economy in, uh, economy in Israel is doing very well and they get health care and everything. Uh, so they are converting for ulterior motives. If they want to uh, convert to be one of King Shalomo's servants and have power, all these people are not gedim, all right? Even if they go through the process, we do not accept it. Because uh, furthermore said that someone who converts because they are scared of lions, as happened to the North, to the Samaritans, those um, are uh, uh, the, the people in the north. Uh, of Israel um, after the north, after the 10 tribes were exiled. And these were people that came from other countries and uh, lions came to attack them. And they realized it's because they are not following the, the laws of the God of the land. And so then they uh, started following the Torah because they were scared. So they did undergo a conversion. So Rabbi Nechemiah says these uh, converts who now are, later became known as the Samaritans and also someone who converts because he saw some kind of dream that said he should convert or if they converted during the time of Mordechai and Esther at the end of the Megillah says um, that many of the people uh, of the land meet Yahadim, uh, which the Septuagint translates, in fact, as they not as they were uh, uh, um, supporting the Jews, but that they actually 
converted to Judaism um, and because of the fear of the Jews was upon them. All these people are converting also for ulterior motives out of fear. And we do not accept them unless they convert at this time. Uh, okay, we just clarified this point. What do you mean convert at this time? They lived, they lived hundreds of years before. How are they going to convert at this time? Only at this time? Uh, whenever Rebbe Nechemiah was writing, one can accept converts. Uh, what we mean is that any time like now, when Rebbe Nechemiah was around, then the Romans were in charge, the Jews were uh, were being persecuted, and there was no there was no personal benefit or economic benefit in becoming Jewish. Then, if someone is still willing to uh, sa- sa- uh, uh, sacrifice all that and become Jewish, then we accept it because then we know it is sincere. Okay, so that is Rabbi Nehemiah. And uh, see, according to that, um, a conversion for ulterior motive is invalid. Whereas the, from the Mishnah, we inferred that although she cannot marry uh, the person, that, the, the Jew that she was with when she was not Jewish, uh, nevertheless, the conversion is valid. So how do we square this away? Uh, and we answer, no, the uh, Rav already said that Halakha follows the other opinion, not a Binechemia. There is another opinion that is more lenient and says all of these cases are in fact valid converts, right? doesn't mean that one uh, has to do, has to convert them or should convert them if they have ulterior motives, but if for whatever reason they were accepted and they did go through a conversion process, then that conversion is valid, even though it's uh, for marriage or for fear or for uh, economic benefit um, is valid. Okay, now we ask, Um, if so, if you're saying they're valid, then why don't we say that we would permit this person who was not Jewish and converted to be with her suspected uh, consort and allow them to get married. says, remove from yourself a twisted mouth, perverse lips. In other words, if this person, if we allow this Jewish man to go ahead and marry the convert, uh, with whom he was suspected of being before she converted, then people will say, oh, see, that rumor was true all along. And look at a you know, terrible thing that that is. And the person should keep away. And even the uh, possibility of confirming bad rumors, especially if it's true. And so therefore, uh, we say, do not marry this woman and don't uh, don't confirm uh, this Lashon Hara that people are saying. Okay. Tenor Banan. Uh, now more on the theme of uh, conversion for ulterior motive uh, says this Baraita says we do not accept converts in the time of Mashiach because then everything's going to be great for Israel and everyone's going to want to convert just because it's better. Similarly, at the time of David and Shalom, converts were not accepted because they were ascendant and rich and everything, and people would want to convert just for the economic benefit and not for not because they truly loved uh, uh, Torah. Or El Azar. My Kera, how do we know that? What's the source? So it's from Pasuk in Yeshaya. It says, Hen Gor Yagur Efes Meoti, Mi Gar Itach Alaihi Paul, Aval Idach La. So we're understanding this word, uh, Gor Yagur. Um, which maybe in Peshat might mean uh, something about terror, like my God, Misavi. But here they're interpreting it as uh, convert. So if someone should, if someone converts, it should be at a time of Ephes Meoti when Hashem says, when I am not around, right? When Hashem is Nistar and is not with the Jews, not helping out the Jewish people, and they're and they're and they're low down and persecuted. That is when you can accept a convert, right? Migad Itach, whoever converts with you when you are alone, and then that person will be with you and they will be considered a valid convert going forward, um, but not otherwise at a time when uh, Shem's glory is with the people and the people have a time of Mashiach and prosperity, 
then we cannot accept converts. So you see this um, uh, uh, follows the, Rabbi, the opinion of Rabbi Nechamia above. Okay, and now we get to the next, uh, uh, um, the, the second case in the Mishnah. Hanit'an al eshet ish, someone who's suspect, suspected of adultery. Um, then uh, even if she does get divorced, she cannot marry the adulterer. Amarav ube ayedim. Rav says that this is only in a case where there were witnesses to the infidelity. And then the court says, oh, there's witnesses and you're, therefore you must divorce your husband. In that case, it's substantiated. It's not just a rumor. And then this is a fine that you, know, you can't go ahead and, and be with the adulterer caused, you know, caused the breakup of the first marriage. But according to Rav, if it's only a, a, a rumor, uh, then uh, they would be able to uh, stay, remain married. Okay, so Rav is a significant limitation that is a leniency. Okay, now amazing statement that Rav Sheshat says, Rav must have said this while he was sleeping or dozing because it's something wrong with it, right? He must not have realized what he said uh, because this is, contradicts the following baraita. Detanya. The following Breta introduces another variation of the case where there's a second uh, man in between. So a person is suspected, a woman is suspected of, of um, eshet, a man is suspected of uh, eshet ish, of taking another uh, man's uh, wife. And then the court jumped in, and, uh, stepped in, and caused and forced her to be divorced from her first husband. Um, and she did. She was divorced. And then she married a second, a different guy, guy who was not, who was not involved in the, uh, not the first husband and not the adulterer, right? Uh, someone else that was not uh, involved at all. And she was married to him and then got divorced from him. In that case, and uh, she wants to come back, uh, she wants to then marry the original adulterer, um, if, he, if she does, lo yotzi, we don't, we don't require her to divorce. The idea is that because there was a, di a different husband in between, so when she goes to that husband, that quells any of the rumors that she only, she got divorced because she was with this other guy, uh, this adulterer. So no, she wasn't with, she didn't go to the adulterer, she went to some other guy, so it's totally fine. And afterwards, uh, she goes, then she goes to the adulterer. So already those rumors die down. So it's not as bad and she can remain married. That's the Braita. Now we say, hey, Chidami, what case is talking about? Is it that there are witnesses to the original adultery? If there are witnesses, then it doesn't help uh, uh, that there's a man in between that will uh, help the rumors die down. There are witnesses, so it's not just rumors, it's substantiated proven fact. And so it shouldn't make any difference. Rather, must be talking about a case where there is, are no witnesses. And the only reason why we say, that he doesn't have to divorce her is because there was this man in between. But if there was no man in between, and she there was a rumor, and then she got divorced from her, rumor without witnesses, and she got divorced from her first husband, and then she goes and marries the adulterer, then, um, uh, then we would force them to get divorced, which is the, uh, is the Peshat of the Mishnah. And uh, this is against Rav. And so we have from this Peshat that we can support the Peshat of the, of the Mishnah and not Rav that says, we only make her get divorced if there are witnesses. No, even when there's, when there's not witnesses. Rav says, oh, I can explain this Braita. Who had, according to my opinion, the truth is that even if there was not uh, someone in between, uh, still we would force her to, uh, to re be removed. Uh, from her, from the adulterer. In fact, there is no difference between a case where 
uh, they, uh, a second man comes in between the first marriage and the marriage with the adulterer or, and stops the rumor, or there is no man in between, the law will be the same. If there are witnesses in both cases, we would force the adulterer and the woman to divorce. And if there are no edim, then we do not force them to get divorced. So what's the point of this? How is a case when there's a man in between different? point is that even if there is a man in between who stops the rumor because she goes in from her original marriage and marries some other guy and says, oh, I guess, uh, you know, she just wanted a divorce from the first guy because she didn't like him. And that's why she went there. And nevertheless, if she goes and divorces that second one and then marries the adulterer, that we do not allow that, uh, right? Even though there was someone in between, we still don't, know, don't allow it. So this paraita was actually coming to um, add a stringency that this case is not treated any more leniently than the case where there's no man in between. Okay, and now a further objection to Rav uh, based on another Braita, Metibe. When do we say, the, when does this Mishnah apply that we remove, uh, we force her to uh, divorce uh, when she was suspected of adultery, only if she does not, did not have children from uh, the first marriage? Aval Yeshla Banim. If she does have children from the first marriage, and then uh, we the court forces her to divorce the uh, from be, get divorced from her second marriage with the adulterer, then everybody will say, "Oh, you see, they uh, forced her to get to divorce the adulterer because it was true that she committed adultery, and therefore those children, who knows who the father is, they may be mamzerim, and so then you cause a problem to those children. So therefore, if she has children from the first marriage, uh, we allow her to remain with the second uh, husband with the adulterer, so that it will not cause any rumors and people will say, oh, the children are from the first marriage and she divorced and then married some other guy. And so that is the case um, uh, when, uh, when, so uh, if, there, if there are no, so when do we say they, she has to leave when there's no children, however, uh, from the first marriage, then there's no problem. We, we should uh, fine her and uh, not allow her to be with the adulterer, and there's no effect on further children. And so our question on that is, If Rav, you say that the Mishnah is talking about a case where the actual Edim came, then there's nothing to talk about, about rumor or not rumor, and what people will say, because it's just simply prohibited. There are uh, witnesses that she committed adultery, and therefore, even if there are many children, we have to um, we have to make sure she gets divorced. Um, and so uh, this implies that it, um, it makes no difference. So we answer. Rav la We answer. Rav could explain the Mishnah is talking about a case where she does have children, and that's why we only force her to get divorced if there are witnesses. Um, because even though she has, she has children, doesn't matter. The witnesses you have to give us. But if there are no witnesses, uh, then she we she will remain married uh, to the adulterer, to the suspected adulterer, um, uh, because we want to uh, protect the protect the children. So um, that's uh, so it has to be yesh benim ve'yeshla'etim. Okay, so Rav can still fit the Mishnah, uh, uh, even though it's a bit by force, into his reading. But then we ask, What's forcing Rav to establish that the Mishnah has to be a case where she does have children from the first husband? And there are also witnesses that saw her commit adultery. And the reason why she has to leave the second husband is because there are witnesses that she was guilty in the first place. Um, but if there were no witnesses, then we would not because she has children and we want to protect the, protect the children. Why do you have to say all that? Why not just say it's talking about a case when she does not have children? Um, 
and uh, and uh, even though there are no witnesses, she still has to leave her second uh, husband because that, I would agree with that law uh, that if there's no children to protect, then um, even if it's without witnesses and just suspicion, we would require her to divorce. So if, since he agrees with that law, why not simply say the Mishnah is talking about that case? The reason is because the Mishnah was difficult for him to read in that way, since it says they removed her. Uh, it could have just said he, he divorced her. Uh, why they, meaning the Betin, uh, refers to the Betin that forced, to, forced uh, her to be divorced. Uh, why would the Betin get involved? It must be because there were witnesses. And based on witnesses, the Betin forced her to uh, remove her. And that's why he assumed that has to be case of witnesses. And, uh, and that resulted in his having to interpret uh, those other baraitot as he did. Okay, now the second answer that's going to be simpler, or we can say that those baraitot that we brought to question Rav are actually a different opinion of Rabi. And so you don't have to ask a question from them because that's Rabi's opinion and Rav doesn't have to agree with that. All right, the Mish- and the Mishnah would not be, uh, would not go according to the B. And uh, what is this Baraitav the B? The Tanya. Rochel Yosef Isha Chogeret Besinar. Amar the B. Ho'il Mocharadavar Tese. Baraita says that someone who is a peddler and he peddles things and goes from house to house. And if you know, he goes from to, to the home when the women are, are home alone. And someone sees uh, Rochel leaving the house and the woman is putting on her smock, putting on her clothing. This looks suspicious. Amada um, Anabi says, since this is a suspicious looking thing, distasteful matter, so she has to get divorced. You see, the B uh, says one has to get divorced even for just a rumor. Um, and uh, therefore, those what I taught follow the B. Rav disagrees and says, no, you don't force her to get divorced just for a rumor. Only if it's something, only if there are witnesses. Uh, Rabbi has other cases. If husband comes home and he finds a spit on the underside of the canopy bed, uh, Meiri explains that this is a euphemism. It's not talking about spit, but rather a different uh, bodily fluid uh, that uh, is distasteful. And so this doesn't look right. And therefore, uh, she is suspected of committing adultery and they have to beg get divorced. If they find shoes reversed under the bed, um, this also looks suspicious. Um, now, what does this mean that the shoes are reversed? Is that they're, uh, they're facing the wrong way or upside down? If the shoes are there, so then uh, uh, go find the shoes, see who they, who, 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 who they fit, and ask the guy, what, was going, what were you doing here? And you can clarify the matter. So it's not that the shoes were there, but rather uh, the, there was footsteps that one could still see uh, that were reversed. Uh, per- perhaps the person was wearing their shoes uh, upside down or in a funny way so that they would uh, footsteps would not be recognized. Uh, they're doing something that is suspicious. And so, and this is distasteful, and therefore she has to be divorced. So we see that the B uh, was more uh, stringent in this matter. And he says one would have to get divorced even for just a rumor. And therefore, uh, she would not be able to remarry. And if she remarried, she would have to get divorced from the second guy as well, uh, even based on a rumor. Whereas uh, this disagrees uh, with, um, with our Mishnah, according to Rav, and Rav says, is more lenient and says, no, only if there are witnesses to the original uh, uh, adultery, then we would force her to get divorced if she goes and marries the adulterer. But if there are no witnesses, uh, then uh, they cannot get married, but if they do, it is okay. I'll end with another uh, tangent, uh, which is that the, the Rambam has a very important teshuva on in this matter, where there was an actual case during his time of a man who was uh, living on a, on a compound together with a non-Jewish maidservant. And this man's brother, they had a business fight and was suing him legally, and, brought, and the brother brought these rumors up 
uh, first to the non to the Muslim court that threw out the case, and then to the Jewish court to say, oh, this man is suspected of being with this Christian maidservant. And uh, therefore, you know, they, the court has to get involved and the court uh, didn't know what to do. And so they wrote a letter to Haram Bams and asking the community, asked him, you know, what should we do about this case? And Haram Bams says, although the Mishnah here technically says that um, uh, that uh, she would have he would have to she would have he has to send her away and they cannot get remarried because there is a rumor that they are together. And that would be the letter of the law. Nevertheless, uh, so Haram says, yes, that would be the best thing to do. But if the brother is unwilling to do that, um, then it's best if that he free her and then she'll become a full Jew and then allow them to get married, even though it will violate this law. That's a derabanan law because we don't want to substantiate a rumor. Nevertheless, Rambam says better to eat gravy than to uh, have forbidden flesh itself. And the idea is that if we do nothing, then he will remain with uh, this woman in sin. And so better to give him a way out, even though it's, uh, it will cause a smaller violation of this Mishnah, uh, but it will uh, overall be a benefit. And so Rambam therefore uh, permits him to, to, to marry. That Tishuvav Rambam became the precedent for um, many poskim especially Sephardic poskim dealing with similar cases uh, in the, uh, uh, for generations later. And uh, in fact, Rabbi Shlomo Kluger and uh, Rabbi Meir um, Chai uh, Uziel also rely on this, especially in modern times where we're living under a secular uh, society and a person who is intermarried can remain with his uh, non-Jewish wife uh, or, or non-Jewish husband, and uh, there's no legal uh, force, uh, no legal power that will cause them uh, to separate. And so since they can uh, physically be uh, remain together, if they come and choose and say, oh, you know what, we want to we convert and marry, so then it's actually not for an ulterior motive because they can remain together no matter what. And so in, in these cases, we can actually allow them um, and according to some, even encourage them to convert and marry rather than live together in uh, uh, as together with a non-Jew. Um, so I wrote an article on this. If anyone's interested, I'm happy to send it. Baruch Adonai Amen ve'amen.